Hey, thanks for being here again this morning. Um, if you got your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. We get to finish up our series that we've been going through in the book of Galatians. And uh, so hope you did your homework and you read ahead. Chapter 6. Very good. Seconds ticked off the scoreboard, and the crowd roared to life as the basketball was brought over the half-court line. With seven seconds left, up by one, it would take one last defensive stand to pull off this improbable upset. It was one of those games that people would often refer to as sort of like a David and Goliath type matchup. You know, like Virginia versus UMBC. All right, now if you made out one of your uh, March Madness bracket, then you know about this game because it probably ruined your bracket. This was the first time a number 16 seed had ever beaten a number one And in fact, of the, I read this, of the 17 and a half million brackets submitted to ESPN, the number of brackets still intact after this game, six. Oh, you see, this game, well, it had that sort of feel to it. The energy coursed through the crowd as the opposing coach screamed for a timeout. He couldn't be heard over the cheers, and so he ran out onto the court to get the ref's attention. The whistle blew, timeout granted, and each of the teams ran ran to their own sideline of the school gym. Now, it wasn't uh, an NCAA tournament or even any sort of a playoff game, but to this underdog team of little fifth grade boys, oh... It meant everything. And my friend, who was the coach that season, high-fived each of his players as they came and joined the huddle. And he looked each one of those nervous boys square in the eyes. And he spoke words to them that they will probably never forget. Now, he is uh, really not good at inspirational speeches. He's not much of a motivational speaker, but yet he does still have a useful gift when it comes to motivation. You see, the dude is just like a huge movie buff, and he has this uncanny ability to memorize nearly every line of a movie after only having seen it like a couple of times. And so, at this moment, at this point in the game, well, he knew the exact speech that the moment called for. He said, boys, if we become someone we're not, if we sink to their level, then we have lost more than just this game. You understand? Well, none of the boys really did. (laughs) They were all, you know, a tad bit confused. But coach just continued. 
He said, we're not goons. We're not bullies. No matter what people may say or do, we've got to be ourselves. And then he went around the huddle and asked each player to state their name and where they're from. And so each one did a little louder. Each one a little more with a little more enthusiasm. And then coach said, that's right. This is our team. And we're going to stick together. And you want to know why? Because we're ducks and ducks fly together. (laughs) Now their team mascot was not the ducks. But coach didn't seemed to care. He just continued talking with more and more energy. And he just, and he said, just when you think they're all about to break apart, ducks fly together. And when the sky grows black and the wind starts blowing, ducks fly together. And when as it can't be done, ducks fly together. And that team of little fifth grade boys never really knew what ducks had to do with anything. But man, were they pumped up when they went back out on the court. (laughs) And the parents got a good laugh when one of them behind the bench realized that they had just heard the inspirational halftime speech of Coach Bombay, played by Emilio Estevez in the Mighty Ducks movie. You see, it's normally the secret sauce to any inspirational sports movie or any great upset in the sports world. You've got to rally the team. And it's how Paul ends his letter to the Galatian people. We're Christians or Christ followers and Christians stick together. See, in his letter... He's told them about the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and resurrected to be our Savior. We get to celebrate that next week at Easter. He then explains the freedom that we have through a relationship with Jesus, freedom from sin and freedom from these religious rules. And last week, if you're here, in chapter five, he begins to apply then the gospel truth to our personal lives. And he describes how God's spirit should guide us in being a reflection of our new selves in Christ. And now in chapter six, He moves from us personally to a little more of us as a community. He's rallying the team to express love to one another as a result of this faith that we have in Jesus. But as we'll see, well, the way that he begins this this motivational speech, it might sound a little bit strange. If you've got your Bibles open, you can follow along with me or on your phones or up on screen. In Galatians chapter 6, in the very first verse, he says this, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Okay. Now, one may think 
that starting such a message with such a message of accountability probably doesn't go a, a, a whole great way of sort of rallying a team. I mean, it's not typically the way of inspiring community. After all, it's, it's not typically what people, you know, really get excited to sign up for. And so his words there might sound initially like a little bit of a, a downer rather than an uplifter. But look at his reasoning. See, he clarifies his purpose in the next sentence. In verse 2, he says, share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is love. He had already reminded the people of this in the last chapter. In verse 14 of chapter 5, he had already said, listen, the whole law can be summed up with this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, all Paul was doing was he was just simply repeating the words that Jesus, of course, had said himself. And isn't it true that the most evident, one of the most evident ways we can love each other in community is to share each other's burdens? I mean, whether it's a, a hurt or a stress, maybe it's something we feel enslaved to, you know, there is no mistaking the loving act of someone else coming alongside of us and saying, let me help you with that. Or you're not alone in this. You know, scientists have studied the flying V formation that ducks and other birds will so often fly in. In fact, if you're a fan of the Mighty Duck movie, you might even remember that in order to win the Pee Wee League Hockey Championships, all right, the secret play was in fact the Flying V. Of course, here in Oregon, we're uh, probably most accustomed to seeing the geese fly in this V pattern as they honk you know, overhead. And science has discovered that the birds actually have very good reason to fly this way. It's been learned that as each bird flaps its wings, it creates this uplift for the bird immediately following it. And by flying in this V pattern, the whole flock adds at least, they say, 70% greater flying range than if each bird just were to fly on its own. So whenever a goose falls out of formation, well, it quickly begins to feel the drag and the resistance of trying to go at it alone. It quickly then gets back into the formation to take advantage of that lifting power of the bird immediately in front. And it's the same kind of lifting power that a spiritual community or a church community is meant to be. Paul's inspiring us to share one another's burdens because the effect of us as a community will be that it lessens the resistance we feel in life. When we notice each other, 
when we get involved, when we find ways to share each other's burdens, it tends to lessen the drag that we can feel. And not because life suddenly becomes, you know, all unicorns and rainbows, but because we have someone to lift us up when we may feel weighted down. Look at the way that the uh, writer of Hebrews tries to, in the same way, sort of, you know, rally the team here. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, he writes this. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the turn is drawing near. One of the purposes of being involved in community is to encourage and to motivate one another because we will all need it at times. You know, when, uh, when geese are flying in that V pattern, you'll notice a couple of things that they do to ensure the whole flock supports one another. One of the things that we will probably notice and hear that they, they seem to be such great encouragers, don't they? In fact, scientists believe that the main reason the geese do in fact honk is to encourage the lead geese to keep up their speed. And when that lead goose begins to get tired, he falls out of the front and he rotates to the back of the formation and then he will begin to honk himself for the other geese. Another one up there will take a turn then in flying points. And so there's always this constant environment of like support and encouragement, and it's the kind of environment then that we thrive in too. It's one of the purposes of our small groups that we offer here at, at Journey. In fact, it would be the reason that sometimes you will hear us even say that we want to be a church of small groups and not just with small groups. Because we hope to be a church where every person, if they so desire it, may have a small group around them supporting and rooting them on in their faith. And you know what? That normally, I say normally, doesn't happen best in rows. It normally happens when we form circles, creating small groups of community that even begin to share one another's burdens. We just wrapped up um, our winter season of groups, and so thank you so much for being a part of that. So many of you were. Um, last week we wrapped up, and we are going to begin announcing the next season of groups, our spring season, um, the week after Easter. So stay tuned for that and um, plan on being part of a group. Another great benefit of spiritual community or, or being in a group is that it is there where we will always be encouraged the most to grow in our faith. Again, look at what the writer of Hebrews says. He says this again in Hebrews chapter 3 then, verse 12. 
He says, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. And so this time, it doesn't just say motivate and encourage, but it also says warn. It seems to assume that without one another, we will just naturally drift away from God. Have you ever noticed as human beings that we don't tend to drift in You know, when I go through periods of time when my diet and my fitness go unchecked, I've never looked in the mirror and been really excited about what I've seen. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't naturally drift into great shape. Or I, I've never gone long, long periods of time without, um, you know, being aware of my finances or my spending habits. Only after a period of time goes, goes by to say, wow, I, I've been able to save up a lot of money. That just doesn't normally happen, does it? Because when left unchecked, we don't normally drift towards health. And without one another, we're more likely to drift away from God than we are towards him. See, that's why Paul begins his thoughts on community by speaking about accountability, which is just this fancy way of basically saying that we're checking in on one another. And when someone has drifted away from God or is overcome by sin, well, we're not to ignore it, excuse it, definitely not beat them up over it. It says that we are to help restore them from it. Now, what a blessing it can be to have others help a person maybe back onto the right path. But yet, well, that can also be a tricky thing. So real quick, I want to look at some things that Paul says there in that first verse about restoring another person. Notice first that he says, you who are godly. Now that is not to be confused with you who are perfect. But by using such a phrase, Paul is speaking to those who care deeply about honoring God with their life. And that should make sense. Because listen, if I didn't care about honoring God in some areas of my life, you probably wouldn't be too receptive to me coming to you and saying that you should. And to tell if we might be the kind of godly person that could help restore someone, Jesus issues us this little challenge. He says, examine yourself first. 
In Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, a lot of you have probably read or heard this before. Jesus says these words. He says, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, you know, what's kind of ironic about this passage is that you'll hear a lot of people, even non-Christians, use this as sort of proof that, see, you should just mind your own business. And whereas sometimes that is very wise, that's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, doesn't he say in the end there, no, deal with the speck in your friend's eye. But the stipulation is this. Do so only after you've done some self-examination of your own. So how am I doing in that area? Does maybe God need to do some work here on me as well? Examine yourself first. Another important part of restoration, Paul says, is you do it gently. Some here have maybe felt the pain of this instruction being ignored. And listen, if you are a believer that has ever been treated harshly in order to make you aware of some sin in your life, you should know that that was wrong. And my guess is that they probably did so with the wrong motivation. Because when we're purely motivated by love and concern for another person, which Paul says we ought to be, the result is gentleness. When we're motivated by anything other than a loving concern, the result is often harshness. And we will ultimately end up caring more about being right than we do about being loving. I don't know about you, but I've experienced this even in my own marriage. Because you see, I have fought and won arguments with my wife. Only, only to realize moments later by that death stare glare that I get that by winning, I had clearly lost. <laughs> and I lost because somewhere in there, my wife began to sense that I cared more about being right than I did about caring for her. And so another check that we perform on ourselves is we examine our motives. And then Paul warns us, watch yourselves. Now that's if you're reading the NIV version, but uh, if you have a new living translation, which is up on the screen, it says, be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Now listen, if I, if I wrote a paraphrase of the Bible, 
all right? I would translate this line as Paul saying, don't be an idiot. Because that's, I think, what he really means. It's the very thing taught in any sort of safety training. That if you want to help someone who's in a dangerous situation, don't be an idiot and get yourself into the exact same predicament. Take precautions to safeguard yourself. So don't, don't get into a situation in which you know you may be prone. If you've had a real struggle maybe with alcohol, don't meet your buddy at the bar to talk about his drinking problem. <laughs> Just watch yourselves. And Paul also makes this distinction. He says, if another believer is overcome by sin. So he's referring to sin, see, that is destructive in our lives. He's not referring to issues that are merely matters of conscience. He's not encouraging us here to be the morality police and to go around and say to others, well, you know, this is good or bad for me, so you probably ought to do the same. That's actually a form of legalism, right? And in fact, Paul's letter to the Galatians people, it's, it's really what Paul is speaking against. And so we are to be concerned about the things that can derail one another's relationship with God. Not to define how every relationship with God is supposed to look. And the last thing uh, that I want to point out is notice that he starts with this. He starts by saying brothers and sisters. See, he's talking about those in the spiritual family or community whom he assumes then that we would have a relationship with. So this is not an unbeliever nor is it even someone, I would say, who is a believer, but yet not really a part in relationship with the community. And here's why this is important. It's because so often, when there's a difficult conversation that needs to take place, we have to earn the right to be heard, right? And that, that right is always earned through relationship. I mean, come on, you know this to be true even in your own life. If someone tells you something really hard to hear and you don't have a relationship with them, you know, your most likely like internal gut response is, who do you think you are? And you know what? That may be the most appropriate response. Because if you don't have a relationship with them, you may not really know who they are. Nor do they really know who you are without that close relationship. On the other hand, if someone close to you has a difficult but gentle conversation with you, that one's much tougher to ignore. Because you know who, exactly who they are. They're one of your close friends. 
They've maybe been in your small group for some time journeying in faith with you. You don't have to wonder if they care and love you. See, they've earned the right to be heard through that relationship. And sometimes, this is going to be so true, sometimes, you know, we might have the right message, but be the wrong messenger. And if we are the wrong messenger, it doesn't matter how right our message is. And that's why it's so important to not just show up to church, but it is through the church that we should be developing these relationships with one another. Do you know that uh, when, when a goose gets sick, or maybe it's wounded by gunshot and it falls out of formation, there will be two geese normally that follow him down to help protect him. And they will stay with him until he either is able to fly or until he dies. And then they will launch out on their own or with another formation to catch up with their original group. They understand the importance of helping one another when one falls. And it's a great picture of what the church is meant to be. And it provokes even this question that we probably ought to ponder. If I were to go down, maybe with a hurt, a pain, a sin, who are the couple of people that I would expect to fall out of formation with me, to restore Or maybe it's to help with a burden. And then, who am I doing that for? And if you're following along in your Bibles, we'll next see that Paul is going to mention there some dangers to community. Some attitudes that will keep us from growing together. In verse 3, He says, if you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. And so the danger that we see in there is pride. And it'll cause us to compare ourselves to one another, to think of ourselves even as being better. And you skip down to verse uh, 8 there, and he's going to mention another. He says, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. And the danger that we see in there, and he actually kind of continues in that chapter with the thought, but the, the danger that we see in there is selfishness. And it causes us to pursue just our own desires, which are not of God's Spirit. Have you ever noticed that uh, whenever we, in some way, take the posture of pride or selfishness, that it becomes nearly impossible to root for others. We can't celebrate their success when we're envious of it. 
or wish we wish we had it instead? I mean, when was the last time you celebrated someone maybe getting the job you wish you had? Taking the vacation you wish you were on? Maybe it's getting the girl you wish you, you could always have. I remember those days. Back in the dating days, in that stage, when your friend and you become interested in the same girl or guy. I mean, that was like a recipe for friendship disaster. <laughs> oh, uh, she said no to me, but she said yes to a date with you. Oh, good for you, man. Really excited for you. <laughs> or maybe it's, oh, oh, you're taking your kids to Disneyland for the 10th time? <laughs> I can hardly afford to go camping, but good for you, man. <laughs> excited for your family. We'll even do it with strangers, which is wild, but we'll begin to compare where we are, right, to where they are. Like whenever I am stuck in traffic and one lane then has to merge into the other. Uh, but you know what? I find myself in the correct lane <laughs> and the other lane then has to merge with me. And at that point, well, I'm feeling pretty good about myself because I know that I am right where I am supposed to be. And looking at all these cars in this other lane trying to merge, I know one other thing. They don't even deserve to be let in. Because <laughs> you know what? They should have merged like a mile ago. There was a sign. So you want to know what I've been doing for a mile? I've been patiently inching my truck forward, right? Getting as close as I can to the car in front of me just to let these cars know here, there's no room for you here. <laughs> and then what do you know? They're able to zip right in there. Oh, that car up there was so nice as to let you in. Good for you, man. So happy you got to where you are. And when we compare ourselves to someone else, one of two things will always happen. We will either become or feel irrationally bad about ourselves or irrationally prideful in ourselves. And neither is honoring to God or constructive in building community. Instead, in verse 9, Paul says that this is what we ought to do. In verse 9, he says, So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those in the family of faith. And so again, it speaks to our motivation, because we are to be motivated by love. For it's the law of Christ. And he uses this principle there of sowing and reaping. He appeals sort of to our common sense. If you are to plant a lemon seed, 
you shouldn't hope something to grow sweet from it. If you plant a lemon, you shouldn't then hope for an apple. Right? We reap what we sow. And so if we desire even a place like this then to be a place where we can be accepted, loved, poured in and cared for maybe with our struggles and our burdens, well then we must sow those kinds of seeds. Now listen to this. I mean, if the church, like, you know, the big C church were ever to be really great at this one thing, just loving and sharing in one another's burdens. Oh boy. I mean, it would, be so, it would become so attractive and contagious to the outside world that we would never have enough chairs for everybody who wanted in. Oh, Paul says, may we never grow tired of doing good, of following the law of Christ. But realize also that it will never be accomplished out of our own strength. To always follow the law of Christ means to really develop the heart of Christ. And it has only ever developed through a relationship with Jesus. A little later in that chapter, in verse 12, Paul says to the Galatians that, listen, the, the people who are trying to teach you that salvation requires more than just a relationship with Jesus are doing so because they're acting with the wrong motives. They're after selfish gain. They're looking for things to brag about because they're concerned about their image. And so it leads Paul to say this in verse 14, kind of a famous verse. He says, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. You see, it is because of that cross and what Jesus did on it that we can know true love. And if we're followers of Jesus, well, we no longer love others for what we can get from them. But we're to become motivated to love because of the love that we've received and we continue to experience through a relationship with Jesus. The, uh, the band can come back up. Every week at Journey, we take communion to be reminded of that cross in which Paul speaks of. To be reminded of the kind of relationship that we are able to have with God because of that cross. For even though we were once separated from him because of our sin, it's because of what Jesus did on the cross, becoming our savior, giving us forgiveness from sin, that we're able to have now this relationship with him. And so we come together every week here at Journey and we celebrate that through communion 
because Jesus told us to do so. He held up the bread, said, this is just like my body. I want you to eat this and remember me and what I did. He held up that, the cup, said, this is my blood. It's becoming a new covenant, a new kind of relationship. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. And so this morning as the band plays, we'll let you go and you can grab those elements on your own. And you can thank God for the relationship that we have as a result of Jesus and that cross. Lord, thank you, God, for that relationship. We celebrate it now. Lord, many of us who have, um, who have received you as Savior and grown in our relationship with you, thank you. Man, for those of us who have received you as Savior and maybe we're just beginning, we're just beginning to mine the depth of that love. Oh man, thank you. Lord, for those in here who maybe have not quite received or experienced that kind of love, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them even more this morning. That this morning, Maybe they would take another step towards you in relationship. Maybe for the first time, God, they would say, you know what? I, I want you as Savior. I want to begin that relationship. And so, Lord, I, I pray during this time of communion, just as, as we have a moment between us and you, Lord, may we speak from our hearts and thank you for it. We do this in remembrance of you, God, in your name.